Imagine a federal procurement shop where you use every technique except the federal acquisition regulation. And you don't do grants either. And you've got congressional backing for your novel approach. That's the case for one of the government's newer agencies, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, known as ARPA-H. Joining me with a look from the inside, the ARPA-H Director of Acquisition and Contracts, Diane Sidebottom. Ms. Sidebottom, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And I want to start with you because you came here already with a background in, let's say, non-traditional or non-ordinary types of procurements, specifically DARPA, after which all the other ARPAs to some degree are modeled. So tell us what you've brought here. Yes, I've had an unusual career in many ways. I actually started out as a lawyer in the government, not a contracts person, but have been involved with contracts for over 30 years now. But when I joined DARPA originally back in 1994 was right when other transactions and some of the more innovative tools were really starting to make their way into the Department of Defense. So I was raised basically outside of the FAR in many ways and using these various tools for a variety of different research and development projects. And over my career have been involved ever since in making sure those tools remain active and available to us, but also are used properly. And I've gone to a variety of different agencies. I joined the Homeland Security ARPA when Homeland Security was first created and was able to forward the idea of other transactions through my work as a professor at DAU for a time. So that's really been something that is close to my heart, is making sure that we have these tools available to us. As the world evolves, we need to have different options. All right, let's talk about ARPA-H then specifically. You acquire lots of things. Tell us the basic ways you do that. It's not completely OTA either, though, is it? It is not. It is not. And we do still use procurement contracts on occasion. We're just not going to use them much for research and development. We do have infrastructure acquisitions that we still have to do. But one of the things that we've noticed with the R&D community over time is that it's really changed in how the players are getting involved in R&D, where, you know, if you think back 50, 60 years ago, it was largely universities. That has changed since the late 80s, early 90s, and is now more more focused in many ways on companies and commercial entities doing R&D. When it was just universities, grants were great. Grants were created basically to work with universities to give them the money they needed to go out and do that good work that they were doing. But when you're working with other organizations, grants are not necessarily the best tool. So one of the things we wanted to make sure for ARPA-H was that we had a variety of tools available to us, whether it's cooperative agreements, other transactions, we're going to do prize and challenge competitions as a way to draw an interest to these various areas that we're trying to focus on. And then there may be other tools that we create as we go along and as we see the needs. So we're certainly not foreclosing that innovation in the contracting world going forward. So to acquire research and development from the corporate world or the startup world, the non .edu world, let's put it that mm -hmm. way, then that is principally with OTA? Probably will be. That's going to be our focus initially until we see that we need other tools potentially going down the pike. But so far in all my time at DARPA and some of these other organizations, OTs have really been a very useful tool for dealing with companies, especially companies that are not used to dealing with the government and don't have necessarily the framework or the internal structure that would allow them to easily work under the FAR. And OTs give us that flexibility to negotiate, and that has really proven to be valuable to us. And a detail when using OTAs, because 
Under the Labor Department, OFCCP, they enforce a lot of the reporting and compliance requirements of contractors on things like their diversity and equity, their salary systems, whether they use a coal furnace, you know, in the basement of their building and so on. Does that also apply under OTA for these innovative companies? And if so, facing that, why would anyone want money from the government one way or the other? What OTs allow is they're released from a lot of the acquisition statutes and regulations. That doesn't mean there aren't other statutes and regulations that still apply. And a lot of the things that you're speaking of are requirements and regulations and statutes that apply to companies because they do business in the United States. It's not unique to federal contracting. And so OTs will still have those as requirements. But if you looked at a a standard OT, it wouldn't really mention much of that because we assume the companies already know what they need to do in order to fulfill those statutory requirements for doing business here in the U.S. We're speaking with Diane Sidebottom. She is Director of the Office of Acquisition and Contracts at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H. And maybe give us a couple of examples of the types of acquisition of non-infrastructure stuff like bookcases behind you and, you know, maybe a computer for the office, but these types of uh, innovative services or research and development items. Sure, absolutely. So we have a variety of program managers that are going to be working with us, and we're recruiting even more. And our program managers bring to us their good ideas for new programs. And so when looking at these programs, that's what's going to guide us as to what vehicle is going to seem to be the best option. And what I'll also look at is the teams, performer teams that apply as to what makes the most sense for their particular setup. We are still in our infancy in many ways. We're still bringing on program managers. We have put out a few solicitations so far. One was an open BAA, uh, and a BAA is a broad agency announcement that allows us to award potentially a variety of award vehicles, depending on the performer. And we are funding several different programs under that particular open office BAA. And it's open in that it's not specifically targeted at any particular technology area, but is targeted at the overall mission space of ARPA-H. We also have put out a couple of program-specific BAAs or solicitations. One is for a program called Nitro. Nitro is targeting osteoarthritis and coming up with new and innovative ways to deal with that. And because of that, we're going to see a variety of different performers, both academia for their more early stage research, but also companies who are interested in this. And so that will drive a bit who who gets what vehicle, depending on what their focus is. We also have another solicitation out on the tree called PSI, P-S-I, that is focused on cancer research, but focused specifically on targeting technologies that can help us find clean margins for cancer while people are being operated on so they don't have to go back into the operating room. And so these are just a couple of examples of the kind of programs that we're doing. But as new program managers come on and we are hiring program managers every month to uh, bring to our stable of good innovators, they'll bring new and different ideas and we'll come up with new and in different ways to both solicit. So we're not wedded to BAs necessarily, but we're going to come up with some of our own solutions as well as make awards. And earlier we talked about other transaction authorities or OTs, OTAs, but you also have cooperative agreements, intermediary agreements, partnerships. Maybe describe those a little bit for us. 
So we're not going to do grants very often, not because grants are a bad thing, but because we want to have more interaction with the performers or the recipients than a normal grant would allow. And that's really the difference between grants and cooperative agreements. Functionally, they look very similar. It's just that with a cooperative agreement, we get to have a lot more day-to-day -day interaction with those performers or the recipients. And so our program managers like to have that kind of involvement. We want to have a more collaborative kind of space when we deal with our teams. And so that's why we're going to focus more on the cooperative agreement side. We also have partnership intermediary agreement authority that allows us to reach out to nonprofits who can help us get more access to communities and also help us transition some of the technology that we might develop out into the private sector. That's what PEERS are really for, is to be that facilitator, that intermediary that helps the government find some of these resources and allows us to find unique groups that we might not ordinarily draw into government contracting, like small businesses and maybe startups. We also want to focus on some of the more unique groups like HBCUs and minority institutions that oftentimes are not real large participants in this space. And so the PIAs will help with that. We have two PIAs that we have signed with two nonprofits and plan to do two more. And then we also will have some prizes and challenges that we'll put out that will be sort of pie in the sky in many ways, challenges out to the community. And hopefully we'll get some people who are interested in that who will then come in and compete for that prize, following along with the legacy of several different agencies who have taken up the prize mantle and do quite a lot of those. So we want to try to use a variety of different methodologies that would appeal to a variety of different groups throughout the market space. Prize mechanism might be used for coming up with a cigarette package-sized dialysis machine that you can hang Very in your well pocket. Good. Mm -hmm. They're often those really difficult technology challenges that we don't necessarily expect people to be able to meet, but want to drive people to start working towards them and making those strides if they can. And what are the government protection mechanisms or the off-ramps? You know, under regular FAR procurements, you can cancel for convenience. You can have people mm -hmm. disbarred or, you know, in extreme cases, but there are ways out under FAR. Do you have those protections in these other ways of doing business? Absolutely. So cooperative agreements have a regulatory structure that allow for many of those same off-ramps that procurement contracts would. With our OTs, we very strategically negotiate in terms and conditions that give the government the ability to leave at various points, but also in many ways leave the performer the opportunity to leave as well, especially in those scenarios where there might be some level of cost sharing or resource sharing involved. Obviously, there are certain laws. We're still the government. We still have appropriated funds that we're using, so we need to have some of those basic off-ramps that allow us to do that. But we also will have the opportunity to leave if it looks like the investment is not leaning towards the solution or a solution that's going to happen in the near term. We also, with our OTs, use a payment mechanism called payable milestones that allow us to tie payment to performance, and it gives us nice go and no-go points throughout the program and tracks progress to see whether or not this is something that's actually going to work or it's going to be something maybe the question is just too hard and the technology is not ready yet. It's nobody's fault. And many of our performers may be commercial companies who may not see a commercial avenue for this and therefore are not interested in just the government space. There's a wide variety of reasons why people may walk away. But our OTs are specifically negotiated to make sure that we have those off-ramps if we need them. 
And finally, what are some of the human capital challenges you have for the acquisition and contracts office there? Because the average 1102 trained in the FAR over 20 years may not be the right cat to kind of pick up this type of uh, approach. Or are they? Absolutely. Uh, Well, I mean, it's not even necessarily anyone's fault. It's that the training that people have to go into the fire-based world is different than the kind of focus that you would have, you know, using an OT. One of the things we are going to do, much like DARPA has done, is focus on higher graded folks. Folks more at the 14-15 level who have a lot of experience in doing acquisitions already and understand the business background of doing an acquisition, because that'll help them negotiate. OTs, fortunately, have become much more mainstream in many organizations, not only DOD, but uh, 11 other agencies have OT authority of some variety. So that has helped a lot with getting the word out there and getting a lot of the training out there and letting people understand how OTs work. So we're finding that that's helped quite a lot. But we're going to do a lot of mentoring as well internally, bring people in at a lower level who we can grow and develop that mindset. And fortunately, having been an ex-professor of OTs at TAU, uh, I have a lot of background in this. And so we, ha- we definitely have a plan. So the professorial role doesn't end because you are now running a contracts office. It never ends. (laughs) (laughs) Diane Sidebottom is director of the Office of Acquisition and Contracts at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Acquire the Federal Drive on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor 
to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, th- Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. 
And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.